Hello, and welcome to this episode of Burn Your Draft, the podcast exploring the Reed College senior thesis process and experience. I'm your producer, Albert Corellis, and today you'll be hearing host Amelie Andreas talk with anthropology major Layla Shokat. In this episode, Layla turns science on the scientists and uses anthropological methods to better understand the inner workings of a biology lab. I'll let Layla fill you in on the rest herself. My name's Layla Shokat. I am from San Francisco, California, and the title of my thesis is In Our Hands, How Biologists Negotiate Unpredictability to Make and Share Knowledge, and my department is anthropology. Okay, I'm so excited for this episode. First off, I'm a, I'm a biology major, so I'm, <laughs> you know, automatically invested Um, But secondly, I just love an interdisciplinary thesis. I think they're so cool. I think there's not enough of them. Um, So can you tell us a little bit more about maybe like how you decided that you wanted to do a biology anthropology thesis and like what that actually looks like? Yeah, totally. I actually came to read as a biology major. I had worked in labs most summers and I was pretty certain coming into read that I wanted to go on to work in a lab after college even. I guess what got me interested in combining anthropology and biology was some of my interactions that I'd had while working Mm -hmm. in labs actually. Even at scientific conferences and stuff when I started getting to go to some of those in the labs that I was working in. It was just really interesting to see there's the science that's going on and then there's this other kind of level of social maneuvering and interaction Mm. and maybe even like secrets, things going on other than the science. Those social interactions had something to do with the science and were really important to the Mm. science itself. So I guess that's kind of what got me really interested in this combination. I had planned to do an ethnography of a lab at Reed, actually. But then at the end of my junior year, the COVID-19 pandemic happened. And so I had to take it Mm. online. Yeah. That's really awesome. That's really cool that you got this experience working in biology labs and then you notice this other element that is maybe like overlooked and that people don't think about. It's like mm-hmm. people definitely in, in, in scientific context can get really drenched, like entrenched even in this like, you know, stereotypical right brain quote unquote objective view of things. So I think it's really important to consider this other side of the story. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that like the pandemic kind of changed how you approached your thesis a little bit. What ended up being the direction you ended up heading in? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I found this lab that at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, they decided to shift basically their entire lab to studying this new virus and to figuring out Mm -hmm. everything they could about it. And they're a systems biology lab. And so they were kind of studying how the virus interacts with the host and, you know, how it enters the cells and um, replicates itself, everything like that. Mm -hmm. I was conducting an ethnography, which usually in anthropology would mean something that we call participant observation, where Mm -hmm. you're kind of following people around, sometimes doing what they do or taking notes on what they do. Um, But of course, in the COVID context. Mm -hmm. This took the form more of me sitting in on Zoom meetings, Mm -hmm. lab meetings, attending virtual conferences where they were sharing their work with other scientists, and then conducting a lot of interviews with the scientists. I was interested in whether their work 
had changed since the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I did end up kind of writing about that a bit, but it was interesting that though a lot of the themes that came up were things that are kind of mm -hmm. just to do with biology more generally. Um, themes like mechanization and uncertainty and reproducibility. There was this machine that the biologists who I was working with used quite a lot in their research. It's called the mass spectrometer, and they use it to identify proteins in a sample. But what I found really interesting about the way that these biologists talked about and used this machine is that when we think of mechanization, we tend to think that it removes extraneous variables. So like you're handing your experiment off to a machine, the machine is supposed to do it one way and do it the same way every time. Mm -hmm. But whenever I talked to these biologists about this machine, they would talk every single time without fail about how finicky it is and mm -hmm. how difficult it is to get the result to replicate across days and across different runs of the machine. And this, I guess, dovetailed a bit with another thing that I heard scientists saying a lot. I don't know if you've heard the expression used um, in our hands, where the context that I heard this phrase used in was when these biologists would run an experiment and they would arrive at a different result from mm -hmm. another lab maybe that had done the experiment before them. So they would say, well, they got, they did this experiment and they got that mm -hmm. result, but in our hands, we see this. <laughs> I felt like these two things, machine that's supposed to be very reliable mm -hmm. and consistent. And then also when things weren't reproducing, the kind of qualifier was pointing to kind of the hands of the scientist, these things were really interesting to me because a lot of the scientists I spoke with when I was asking them how to address the problem of reproducibility in science, which is, has been a question for so long and is just, mm -hmm. I mean, maybe it will always be a question. Um, <laughs> a lot of them would kind of point to mechanization as the solution. Perfect. But I think we tend to forget that even when we're working with machines, those machines need to be maintained mm. and we still need to prepare controls and run standards and all these extra things that humans still need to do. And so mm. it's kind of this paradox of we want to turn towards machines, but we forget that machines still need humans. Yeah, there's a little bit more overlap there than you might think at first glance. Mm -hmm. No, and that definitely rings true. Having I, I was doing some uh, spectrophotometer stuff yesterday in my microbiology lab, and none of the trials gave me the same number. That's just how it is. Yeah, right, of course. I think <laughs> the way that I tend to think about it is that it's more interesting, instead of getting mad that you don't get the same number trying to think about why yeah, yeah. you might be getting different numbers. And that's sometimes where the most interesting part of the science comes in, in my opinion. Yeah, totally. But I think you're definitely onto something there. Yeah, a lot of the scientists I spoke with kind of said a similar thing. And a lot of them kind of attributed this in particular to biology as opposed to chemistry or physics or something like that, where, yeah, this lack of reproducibility, sure, maybe mm -hmm. it's there are minute differences in the protocols that are happening, but they would also point to the fact that biology is really complicated yeah. and cells are living things. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's just very complex.
which makes it interesting. Definitely part of the appeal of biology and also like frustration. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So what kind of like skills were you building throughout this whole process? Well, so initially over the summer before the kind of writing phase was, that was my field work time. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of the first big thing that I had to learn to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, that taught me to really kind of take initiative and just kind of trust myself because mm-hmm. I was working completely independently. And I, it was something that I had never done before. And it was really hard sometimes to know or to not know rather if I was doing things right, quote unquote, mm-hmm. asking the right questions, interviewing the right people, following the right threads of things that I thought were interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was a really, I think, important experience to kind of be in a situation where, yeah, no one else could tell me if I was doing this right or not. And just kind of following what I what I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, the writing portion during the school year and also mm-hmm. the, all the background research and all of that. As I was getting to the point of turning in my first full draft, I kind of got to this point where I all of a sudden realized that I had like 50 pages written and no one else had ever read them. And I didn't know if... (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) And I didn't know if they made sense Mm -hmm. or if they were saying what I wanted them to say. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was really scary Mm-hmm. because I was just, I i mean, I'd never been in that situation before. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we mostly write pretty, or I mean, not short papers, but shorter than a thesis. Um, yeah, shorter <laughs> than a thesis, definitely. <laughs> yeah, so that was really challenging. And, and so then when it came time for me to get feedback from my first reader, as mm-hmm. we do in the HSS departments, they didn't really give detailed in-text comments and they they kind of had a few sentences of general feedback but they encouraged me to get in touch with them and have a one-on-one chat about the thesis and at first I was like kind of freaking out I was very stressed I was like mm-hmm. still I still don't know if the words on paper make sense mm-hmm. but that meeting was really helpful my first reader kind of asked me a lot of questions Mm. about the thesis, which I wasn't expecting. Um, I I was expecting more kind of feedback from them to Mm -hmm. me, but really what they did was ask me questions about the ideas and about how, Mm -hmm. for example, the third chapter tied in with the first chapter and what was the thesis really about. I was kind of reflecting on this a bit before our chat today and I was thinking about how how helpful that was. I don't think I realized how important that was in the moment and how at that point in the thesis project, like you're in your fourth year at Reed, you've written so much for so many different professors and they've all taught you how to write and express your ideas. But the hardest part of the thesis is the ideas part. So it's like, yeah, the most valuable thing someone could do for you at that stage is probe you about what you're thinking and about what you're trying to communicate. And the rest is just kind of trusting that at that point in your time at Reed, you know how to write and you know how to communicate those ideas. Yeah. So kind of the next thing I was going to ask about is if you experienced any unexpected challenges, like we kind of already, like the pandemic is the big unexpected challenge but did that manifest itself in any unique ways or were there any other things you didn't expect? Like maybe, like you said, you were a little uncertain 
maybe if you're doing the right thing with all these people in labs who are super, you know, high up in their fields and doing really important work. Yeah, it was kind of challenging to push past the kind of initial round of interviews that I did and decide what I wanted to follow up on and with whom and yeah, kind of just how I wanted to do that. So you like started off with a huge group of people that you were interviewing with and kind of engaging with, and then you had to narrow it down to a smaller group. I, yeah, kind of, kind of like that. Yeah. I started with an initial set of people who I had been put in touch with by kind of the people I was working most closely with in the lab. And then from there, yeah, it was really up to me if I wanted to re-interview people or reach out to new people. In that stage, kind of the main challenge was that there were no right answers. What kind of ended up being the outcome of your project, either in terms of like a really interesting finding or maybe something you want to follow up on or a way that the thesis has like impacted your life after read? Yeah. So going back to the part about that phrase in our hands, the title of the thesis, that was one of my things that I was most excited to kind of find and kind of think through what it meant. Mm -hmm. Um, Because one of the most surprising things about that phrase, at least to me, Mm -hmm. is the fact that it's used in scientific papers. Oh, Yeah, which I didn't, I had heard it before, but I didn't realize that it actually, that people included it in scientific papers, which is surprising because as you know, probably scientific journals don't just kind of let you say filler phrases, like everything has to mean something. Um, Mm -hmm. And so the kind of finding that came from this and came from kind of my analysis and interviews was that this seemed, at least to me, to be a way that biologists took this big question of reproducibility and all the all the potential sources of kind of mixed results across labs and package them in this phrase in our hands that you could put in a scientific paper so that you can include results that don't match up with other people's papers without having it turn into this mess of like going into various questions of, oh, well, is it your protocol? Is it how you did this? Is it that reagent? And I think that's really interesting about biology is that people have really come to accept the fact that, yeah, biology is not always going to be reproducible, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that we can't learn valuable things. Mm -hmm. And it definitely doesn't mean that we should ignore things that don't reproduce. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was one really interesting finding, which again, it's interesting to say finding because I think when I tell these things to you and when I tell them to other biologists, it's not really surprising, but um, I think the interesting part is the way that that kind of manifests itself in this little phrase that we don't think about, we take for granted, we meaning biologists Mm -hmm. or people who talk to biologists, but it actually holds all this meaning that is really central to biology Mm -hmm. as a discipline. And then, (laughs) yeah, in terms of taking my thesis beyond read, my thesis project was kind of one of the main reasons that I decided to go on and study what I'm now Mm -hmm. studying, which is I'm in a one-year master's program for science and technology and society, Mm -hmm. which is a kind of interdisciplinary, includes like sociology, a lot of sociology, actually, some anthropology, history, political science stuff, all studying science, technology, and innovation. Mm -hmm. I've learned so many new things that I wish I had read for my thesis and like 
all that kind of stuff, which has been really fun. And then it's also introducing me to all these new topics that I had no idea existed and that are pulling me in new directions. So, (laughs) so kind of to finish off, do you have any advice maybe for people who maybe some biologists who are, who are considering going into anthropology or vice versa, or just freshies, thesis sink seniors, prospies, any wisdom to pass on to the next generation? (laughs) Um, I guess, I mean, the reason that I became an anthropology major was just because I took an anthropology class my freshman year. It wasn't anything I had considered before. So I Mm -hmm. think, yeah, I mean, Reed does a good job of encouraging people already to take classes outside their discipline, but um, definitely do it. And, And also just follow what you enjoy, like, what what interests you mm-hmm. because I've always been interested in science and I think I always will be interested in science and I noticed that my anthropology classes were the ones that I found most kind of exciting and and engaging and fun and so yeah don't be limited to what mm-hmm. you might think is just one discipline or one kind of approach to solving a problem or anything like that and then just another thing that I I guess I've kind of said already a few times is just trusting yourself, whatever, whatever that means for you. Like if you're conducting a difficult experiment or if you're doing your first ethnography, you're doing field work or you're writing and you're not sure if your ideas are coming across, it can be very helpful to reach out to people who you think can have answers, but also it's really important to recognize that you have been studying this now for a little while and you've been writing for a little while. And so, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, your own kind of instinct or gut or what you find interesting does matter. Mm -hmm. And so just, yeah, trust yourself. 100%. Well, thank you so much for coming on to our podcast, Leila. It's been awesome to hear about all of your research and adventures afterwards. And I think I'm definitely going to have to put on my anthropology hat in the bio lab a little more often now. So thank you so much. (laughs) Well, thank you. It's been really great to chat with you. (laughs) Thanks so much, Leila. I'm glad someone's putting the scientist under the microscope for once. And I hope you'll get many more opportunities to in your future studies. I hope you'll join us again to hear more from students and alumni about what it means to burn your draft. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe, check out our Twitter and Facebook pages, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Burn Your Draft is a production of Reed College and the Center for Life Beyond Reed, created jointly by students, alumni, and staff. This episode was produced and engineered by me, Reed College student Albert Corellis. Your lovely host today was Reed student Amelie Andreas. Our executive producer is Seth Paskin, class of 1990, with technical advising from Joe Janiga. Our project manager is Nate Martin, staff member in class of 2016. Music by Jack Salvucci, class of 2020, and podcast art by alumni Henry Gotchlik and Lillian Fan. This podcast was made possible by a gift from Seth Paskin. <laughs>